Friends and comrades, hello. This is Rob from the Highlands Bunker Studio. This week we have a special double episode for you. First up uh, was a fun chat with Janet Lindemuth. Janet is a law librarian at the Delaware School of Law at Widener. I was introduced to her work via Twitter as she posts a lot of interesting local historical tidbits she comes across in her research. So if you enjoy historical trivia, you will enjoy this conversation. Uh, part two is a discussion with University of Washington historian and former Bernie Sanders campaign foreign policy advisor Daniel Bessner. We discuss the rise of the consensus foreign policy intellectual and our very bleak view of any positive progress in U.S. foreign affairs. During the holiday last week, I took a brief break from thinking about the pending primary elections and the recently launched Delaware Call. Support the Delaware Call, please. Uh, and I picked up Moby Dick again. I had completely forgotten how wonderful it truly is. Uh, I've selected a brief passage to read to you during the intermission between parts one and two of this episode. I hope that it may be used as a few minutes of meditation, perhaps to focus the mind and contemplate our work ahead. We will be coming back at you next week with a post-primary reaction show featuring Jordan Pusey of Progressive Democrats of Delaware and, of course, super producer Carl. Will we be celebrating? Will we be commiserating over missed opportunities? Probably some of both. Who knows? Regardless of the results, we can certainly say a lot about what happens. I'm sure we'll have plenty of opinions. Uh, as President Lula is fond of quoting Neruda, uh, I will also. They can cut one or two or a hundred roses, but they cannot stop the coming of spring. Solidarity, everyone. Left is best. Hello, comrades and friends from the Shadow of Rockford Tower in a position deep within the heart of the Delaware Way Cabal. This is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Super producer Carl is remote, and we own all the means of production. I am excited to introduce our guest today. Uh, Janet Lindemuth is a law librarian at Delaware Law School at Widener University. She is also the purveyor of some fascinating and obscure pieces of Delaware legal and legislative history, uh, which she shares on her Twitter account. Uh, at Janet Lindemuth. Uh, we are happy to welcome Janet to Highlands Bunker. Uh, hi, Janet. Hey, Robert. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for taking the time. So um, librarian is one of those vocations that people uh, take for granted and I think misunderstand. Uh, they may have had interactions while at school or at university, uh, but I don't think generally people know much about um, all you do to ensure academic research can be done and to ensure our history is preserved. Um, but before we get into a job description, um, I always like to begin at the beginning. Um, like, where did you grow up? What was it like? And how did that lead you uh, to a career uh, in books, research, and history? Uh, well, I'm from, uh, not from too far away from here. I'm from Delaware County, Pennsylvania. That's where I grew up. Um, and yeah, I, I always loved to do uh, research. I always loved to read, always loved to write. And so I went to college, I went to the University of Delaware, and then I worked for a little while in insurance, which I hated very much. I can understand that. I worked for a little, I worked for a long while in banking and I hated it very much. Yeah, one of those customer service kind of jobs, you know, where you wear a headset, listen to people complain all day. 
Um, so then I looked around for various different jobs and I found a job uh, in a library and started out there basically as an assistant. And then I just uh, did my library degree and I've been a librarian ever since. Oh, fell right into it. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah, so as far as a, as a job description, what do you think people either misunderstand or, or don't understand about the sort of the scope of just what general librarians do and especially specialized ones who have a specialty, whether they're, um, you know, whether they're doing law or they're doing some other curating, um, yeah, when, when people find out you're a librarian, do you get puzzled looks or, or are people pretty clear? I mean, people, I think, tend to think that I sit around and read books all day. You know, I get to read a lot of books. That must be fun. You get to read all day. But actually, um, as a law librarian, I don't use the books that much anymore. An awful lot of uh, legal research is all done online now with um, Lexis and Westlaw and different online databases. So a lot of what I do is, um, you know, we have subscriptions to the databases, helping people with their research, um, getting people set up to use the databases, that kind of thing. Cool. Um, well, in the course of your work, um, you have sort of highlighted a few interesting pieces of history that are um, really hyper-relevant in the current uh, news cycle. Um, the first one uh, is the Whipping Post. Now, um, you know, we've just removed uh, our last one from public display. Uh, it wasn't until Russ Peterson that they were officially retired from, from use. Um, but the first thing I noticed, which you, you, you found a news article from around the turn of the century, I don't remember the exact year, uh, but it was a female reporter in the New York Times uh, basically describing uh, the whipping post in this redneck backwater called Delaware. Uh, and I just, I, I found it really fascinating. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, right. So it was actually, I think, the New York World. Ah, Okay. Um, which the New York World was, I think, a Pulitzer paper, and it was one of the first sort of um, muckraking papers. Um, and the reporter was, in fact, Nellie Bly, which, have you heard of Nellie Bly? She was a pretty famous female reporter. She did the famous, um, she had herself committed to an insane asylum in New York. She went undercover, so she did that sort of thing a lot. Um, oh so God. this girl, she went to Delaware to witness um, a flogging. Um, and so that's what the column is about, was her impressions of it. And I actually honestly have to say the one thing I found interesting about it is that she was not quite as anti-whipping as I expected when I was looking for the article. <laughs> um, so, but she does actually, you know, very much talk about Delaware as a backwater. Um, yeah, I know, I know. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. You just cut out a little bit. I wasn't sure. No, I, I, I'm always fascinated in a lot of those historical pieces that you find. Um, even if someone's prescient in some way, a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the times or just the mores of the culture at that time kind of come out and you're like, oh, you, you're not really denouncing that. You're, you're making fun of the practice and sort of making fun of the people because, you know, you're a fancy New York reporter, but um, you're, kind of, you're kind of okay with it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. She was kind of like, well, I think maybe we should whip people for beating their wives or, and things like that. So, yeah, so it's pretty interesting now. Uh, the the second uh, item, and I think we'll get more into detail on this, um, is public accommodations loopholes. Uh, several weeks ago, I spoke to Professor Peter Levy of York College in PA uh, regarding his book, The Great Uprising. Uh, about the, the uprisings of the mid to late 60s. And of all the demands that were being made at that time about jobs and the economy, 
police violence, housing discrimination, et cetera. The one that we feel like, hey, we really made progress is on public accommodations. Um, you've discovered actually some interesting vestiges of these loopholes and perhaps their persistence. Um, can you talk about what you found and, and the follow-up and, and what you were able to discover? Um, sure. So um, Delaware like, was segregated. Um, up until, you know, up into the 1960s, as a lot of states were. But unlike a lot of states in the South had actual, what they used to call generally Jim Crow laws that would say, you know, things black and whites had to definitely be segregated and, and there would be laws that said that. Um, in Delaware, there basically were not those kind of laws, except in education. There were laws that said the schools had to be segregated. Um, but otherwise, most of the segregation in Delaware was sort of partly a matter of custom but then it was also enabled by laws um, that were passed in the 1870s that allowed people who um, were innkeepers, tavern owners, um, theater owners to um, throw out or to exclude anyone from their business who would be, and the laws say, would be offensive to the majority of their customers. And that was how they enforced segregation. If you owned a, um, a tavern or something or a restaurant, you could call the police and have anyone thrown out that you wanted. They would just throw them out and charge them with trespassing. Um, and those laws are actually still on the books, which I didn't realize until recently, which was just sort of what got me started on this, that, you know, why are these laws still there? They were never really repealed. One of them was, um, one of them was about uh, transportation. So the laws about streetcars and that sort of thing could be segregated. And that was definitely removed from the Delaware Code. But the other two are still there. Um, I don't know that they're actually, you know, currently effective or doing any damage, but I just, it's, it looks really bad for them to still be on the books. I don't think any other states still have those laws still. Yeah, it actually, it reminded me of something that you wrote about uh, a few years ago. I, I hadn't seen it until somewhat recently. Uh, but it was just things still being, still being part of the law and, and sort of selectively enforced. Um, you had written something about maybe four or five years ago about the blue laws. Uh, and yeah, and I, I th this is interesting for a lot of reasons, and I hope we can kind of segue into this and talk about a lot of different aspects of some of the things that have been going on the last couple of weeks or, or months, um, and also with the public accommodation stuff that you found. Uh, so the state of Delaware had a district attorney in 41. Well, let's, let's, re let's go back. I, I think some people understand the concept of blue laws, um, you know, sort of a vestige of sort of traditional religious um, legal thing, and, and there would be no sort of employment, nothing opened uh, on Sundays. Um, sometimes they were associated with, you know, also uh, alcohol bans or things like that. Um, but these laws that were written, you know, right after the independence, really, I think in the late 18th century, were, were still on the books um, into the 20th century. Um, do you have any, do, can, you, can you talk about what those laws look like a little bit before we move uh, to sort of the story? Um, sure, well, I can tell you about Delaware's anyway. Um, like you said, they were really co common. Um, most of the 13 original colonies had them. They actually came, I think, originally from England. Um, they had these laws about what you could and couldn't do on Sunday because Sunday was the Sabbath and it's supposed to be a day of rest. Um, so there were laws about what you were allowed to do. Um, and if I remember correctly, the Delaware one um, basically said that you were not allowed to do any uh, worldly employment um, unless it was some sort of emergency. So for 
since you can make dinner or if you were a doctor, you could tend to patients or midwife or something like that, but you weren't supposed to do any worldly employment. And then, of course, you weren't supposed to do things like um, play any kind of games or dance, that sort of thing. Um, and those laws in Delaware State stayed on the books until, what did you say, 1940s? I don't have my article in front of me, but it was sometime in the 1940s they were still on the books. And Delaware was one of the last states to get rid of them. Um, and they were occasionally enforced. One of the things I've been curious about is how often they were enforced. And if you look in old newspapers, like on newspapers.com, you can find articles where, you know, they would arrest vendors, people like that, for selling things on Sunday. Yeah, you noted a, a very interesting one, um, that in 1911, uh, a group of residents in Arden, uh, they're always troublemakers in Arden, um, they were, were arrested and cited for playing baseball and tennis on Sunday, and in the group of, um, of Arden artists uh, was Sinclair Lewis. Uh, so the calls were, ref calls were uh, made to reform even then, because that seems like, um, even for 1911, a little ridiculous, but... Yeah, not until um, the 40s was it taken up um, seriously by uh, this, the, the man, uh, the AG, James Mun Munford. M-O, yeah, Munford. Ah, okay. Um, so he was, he was Wilmington's uh, city solicitor and then became Delaware's attorney general. And in Wilmington, uh, he was known for um, sort of stopping uh, a lot of... Um, corruption within the police department and what his what you write here is that his idea was that the corruption was kind of based upon selective enforcement of laws so if you have these laws that can be enforced sort of like these um these implicit public accommodations laws then you're just you're just ripe for for corruption so um he noticed that in the wilmington police department and then went uh, into the state of Delaware and tried to um, address these the selective enforcement of blue laws, but ran into a, um, a, a an oldie but a goodie. Uh, and this is I, I'm going to read this because uh, you wrote something interesting here. Frustrated by the General Assembly's failure to enact reform, he threatened to begin enforcing the blue laws very strictly in 1939. And I just thought that was very interesting because our General Assembly um, didn't do anything then, and they still do very little. Right. And that a lot of the um, religious groups and things were actually still in favor of keeping the blue laws, you know, so a lot of ministers who were very influential at the time didn't want them to change the laws. So. Yeah, there's always a cadre of, um, of influential officials. And it's also very downstate, upstate kind of thing, you know. Oh, so that was still, that was also a, uh, that's been a long running story in Delaware regardless, I guess. Sure, sure. So the downstate people were like, oh, why do these people in Wilmington want to go to the movies on Sunday? That's ridiculous. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, so he, he, this happens. Um, he, he surveys uh, and finds out the people who are breaking the law, but with no actual arrest. Uh, so he does uh, what he said he was going to do and, and begins arresting. I think on one Sunday, winds up arresting almost 500 people, um, the general manager of WDEL radio, uh, restaurant workers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that, uh, that is what uh, sort of, uh, influenced the General Assembly then to ref to to uh, reform the blue laws uh, in in forty one. Um, yeah, I'm interested in that idea of sort of using using the power of the state to arrest people to make a point. I don't really like that idea, um, but it certainly worked in this case. Right, right, yeah, and that's what his thing was just that it shouldn't be enforced selectively. So 
you know, did the police just do it if there was someone they, they thought was a troublemaker and they were trying to get rid of, or did they selectively enforce it against some people more than others? You know, it's, I mean, it's something like that today is probably like jaywalking. You know, they just arrest people sometimes for jaywalking, but why only some people and not other people, you know? I have yeah. never been arrested for jaywalking and I jaywalk every single day, so. Yeah, I mean, I never get arrested for marijuana and I smoke marijuana every single day. <laughs> It's the same concept. That's the that's the concept I always think about. Is and and actually, that's a to me that's a, a significant one. Um, I think actually jaywalking is a significant one too because it comes into those sort of stop and frisk or or how you're gonna who you who the police choose to interact with and why. Um, but marijuana is a big one because that's used obviously in an extremely selective way, um, in, in sort of the same way. And I think it does exactly what. It did, uh, you know, in, in the 30s in Wilmington is it, it creates a, a sort of a setting for corruption uh, because when you put somebody's judgment into it, um, they're going to they're going to use that judgment in ways that really you have no control over um, because it's just, you know, sort of out in the street. So I was, you know, like I said, I, I was very interested in that because I think that is a little microcosm or, or an example of of things that you know, go on today, every day. Right, right. Yeah, it's similar. Yeah. Uh, one of the other topics um, and I'm interested in and is something that you, you come back to quite often in your work, at least that you share um, online, um, is the suffragette movement and the women's movement for suffrage and the vote. Uh, and what I didn't know until I started following your work is that uh, two um, very prominent, very effective um, organizers and activists for the women's suffrage movement were Delaware natives, um, Mabel Vernon and Annie Arell. Is that how you say it? I think her name's Arneal. Arneal. Okay. Yeah. I found that, uh, really uh, interesting for, for a lot of reasons. What can you, what can you tell us about them? Um, well, Mabel Vernon was, uh, one of the highest ranking members of the national women's party, uh, which was the sort of more radical, um, pro suffrage party that, was put into a force. They were the ones who did the picketing at the White House and, and that sort of thing, which you see being arrested. Um, they started the picketing. She was, I believe she was the secretary, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but she was originally from Delaware. She was born in Wilmington. Um, her father was a newspaper editor. He was a Republican newspaper editor in Wilmington. And so she was friends with um, Alice Paul, who was the president of the National Women's Party. They went to the Swarthmore College together. So she was a speaker. She did a lot of um, public speaking. Um, I don't know if you watched, there was just a uh, suffrage documentary that was on PBS. And in a few shots, they showed various women speaking from the back of cars. And one of the people they showed, they didn't really say who it was, but it was Mabel Vernon. I said, oh, there's Mabel Vernon from Delaware. So she was pretty active in, in that. Um, the other woman, Annie Arneal, was very interesting to me. She was more of a working class woman. Um, she was also from Wilmington. She lived at Wilmington. Her husband had varying jobs. Um, and she worked um, at one point in a factory. And she also, I think, worked as a nurse. She had a couple different jobs, like a lot of working class people do. She went from one thing to another. But she was um, arrested and served more days in prison than any other member of the National Women's Party. She was, uh, I don't have it right in front of my head. I kind of have thrown on my article right here, so I can't tell you the exact number of days. but. But it was pretty much maybe 60 days, something like that. 
Yeah, I found it. I found it interesting too because I'm somebody who goes out and you know, and I'll I'll um, I'll march, I go to actions and protest. I've you know I, I got arrested, but when you see um, the suffragettes doing it, they're doing it in like these, um, you know, I guess you would call them upper middle class dresses and and big hats, and and uh, <laughs> and the, the the cops are the cops are hauling them away in those clothes, and I'm like, oh, that that looks very uncomfortable. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's you, an interesting picture of uh, Annie Arneal being arrested that you can find on the uh, Library of Congress webpage. Um, she's being arrested by a policewoman, so it's actually sort of, um, you know, not like nowadays where they go up and haul you off. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, she's being arrested for picketing the White House. Um, and this, the women in the suffrage movement were, um, according to my understanding, some of the first people to picket the White House, to protest right in front of the White House. Before that, it wasn't really done. Oh really? I did not know that. That's pretty interesting because now it's, you know, it's it's very common whether it's a big cause or even little causes. Um, I mean, now you, now is not really the time because there's so many big causes. You'll probably see people out every day, and obviously it was really big. Um, you know, the story I always remember about the activism of the '60s um, is. Uh, one of the things that got to LBJ when he didn't want to. Um, when he decided not to run for another term was there were people outside chanting, Hey, Hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Mm -hmm. And that, that's a, that's just a, a very uh, you know, sort of a poignant story. And they were, and I, and so what you're saying is this group of activists for women's suffrage sort of created that white house picket. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. They would be out there every single day for more, you know, for more than a year, they stood out in front of the white house with big banners. Um, and another thing you have to remember, because a lot of people don't know, is this was during World War One, so it was considered very unpatriotic, you know, to be standing in front of the White House with big banners saying, you know, terrible things about President Wilson during the middle of a war. Yeah, I mean, President Wilson, I can think of a lot of terrible things to say about <laughs> President Wilson, as a matter of fact. Yeah, and I think that that's a theme, I guess these themes, that's what makes them so um, interesting to me and intriguing is as we said about the, the blue laws enforcement or the suffragettes sort of getting the critique of like, how can you do this? There's a war on, um, carry over almost one-to-one -one ratio to today. Um, you see the same sort of people being painted as unpatriotic, um, to, to do any kind of activism, especially when there's sort of other, other problems, whether it be a war or anything else, not supporting the police, et cetera. Um, we see these themes play out over and over again. Um, and it's it's really interesting because you can you can whatever whatever period of time you're looking at you're like oh this is playing out again this looks very familiar to me you must have you must run into that quite often yeah I mean it's pretty interesting and you do find a lot of things um, that don't seem to change or things that are just you think oh things haven't changed much you like to think that things change but maybe they don't change all that much yeah it's it's it, yeah well definitely the the uh the attire the clothing is is more comfortable i guess but that's maybe about it <laughs> no uh, have you come across anything um and, again another topical thing about the eight, the 1918 flu pandemic any nuggets uh, that you've seen uh in that because I, i've heard a few people speak and a few historians and i, I think i heard an interview of somebody who wrote a book on the 1918 pandemic but uh it made me think of some of the stuff that you dig up um, and some of the photos and stories. I didn't know if you had seen anything uh, that would be relevant today, too, actually. Great. I don't know if I have anything that's too um, direct. I mean, that was actually the same time the women's suffrage movement was going on. I worked on a couple of um, biographies, which are supposed to be published online. They're not published yet. But one of the women, 
that I wrote a biography about who was from Wilmington. Her son died in the flu epidemic. She, she was 14, um, you know, in the middle of the suffrage while she was protesting. Her son died in the flu epidemic. But I haven't really looked into the flu epidemic in Wilmington much. So it's, there's actually generally, I don't surprisingly little in the newspapers about it. And I think it's because it was suppressed because of World War One. Yeah, I was wondering. That's one of the things that um, one of the facts that I had heard, or one of the somebody stipulating that that if you do do a review of that time, because the war was on, because other movements were happening, there was very little. There was very little regular press about it. Um, right. Yeah, I know. When I was doing the research on that one suffragist whose son died, um, like on the day his his obituary ran, there's a little notice of his death, and then there's also another, you know, a column. That, Oh, a few, you know, some cases of flu reported Wilmington, and that's it. Yeah, I, I, I heard one of the things that was brought up to me is there's so much going on in the news about it today that sort of people assume, you know, people. It's a fairly common knowledge that there was a, a Spanish flu pandemic. You know, the people people use that term, and they know sort of sort of what that was. Um, and you think about today where a lot of the news, you know, maybe 50, 60 percent of the news every day is something related to that, whether it's economic, whether it's health, whether it's simply just what's going on in your neighborhood, who didn't wear a mask and put a video online, whatever. But, yeah, there's very, very little in the historical record about the public sort of discourse on it. Yeah, no, I haven't noticed too much. Um, like I said, that one person and, you know, and like personally, I know my, uh, my great grandmother died in the flu epidemic, 1980. So, yeah, and so I was always told that, oh, your great-grandmother died in the flu epidemic. But other than that, that's all you would ever hear about it. And it is very interesting how, and, you know, I've read some articles about it. But no, I have not really found much about it in Wilmington. It's not something I've looked into. I have also have a question, and, and I don't know if you have a personal feeling about it or if there's any, because we have a lot of, um, we have monuments coming down. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that sort of um, seg segues into some of the, the work you do, too. So the Columbus statue was removed, as was the Caesar Rodney statue. Um, I think you mentioned online that you were, you were trying to teach some folks about Caesar Rodney, but were, were not, <laughs> you were not getting much, you were getting anywhere. Uh, yeah, what, what happened with that, by the way? Oh, that's, <laughs> that's just, you know, you get in arguments with people on Facebook, so... Oh, we love on, we love talking about online arguments here. This is what you we do. What I, um, I honestly have no strong feelings about Caesar Rodney and whether his statue should be up or not. To be honest, it's just the thing is that people talk about that. Oh, it's destroying history. But a lot of people who have been arguing with it's not whether the monument should stay up, but they don't even know what Caesar Rodney did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that that's um, that's pretty common. That's not true. So. <laughs> Have to tell somebody that what they're saying is an inaccurate. You're like, that's not yeah, accurate. Trying to tell me he abolished slavery, and I was like, he didn't abolish slavery. He had, he, the, he had the he had the most slaves in the in the state, or the second to most, I think. You know. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, what good that statue isn't teaching anybody anything. No one even knows what he did. So. Yeah, the the idea that that statues or or the uh, any public display teaches any like keeps is a mechanism to teach anybody anything is a little strange. As you said, I think like what it really does is it, it, it sort of lionizes 
a person and then it, it, it draws you away from what they actually did because rather than reading it, you just sort of see the, you know, see the 10 foot bronze statue of Columbus and you're like, wow, what a guy. Um, so it's, it's actually the, I look at it as it's actually the opposite. Um, you know, you, you get the, you get the public, you know, what, what, you know, the, the display that they want you to see, uh, but you don't really understand the historical context or any of the historical facts really. Um, and that's part of putting the statue up, I think. Um, yeah. kind of, I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I'd be curious to see running because I don't know much about this at all, but like why, why Seeds Rodney? Why did he become the big Delaware Revolutionary War hero? I mean, I do know he was, I think he was like the um, general of the militia or something like that, but, but why Seeds Rodney? Is it just because of the Rodneys were an influential family? And, and I don't know any of those answers. I don't know, but I'd be really curious. I don't know if anyone's done an article on something like that. Well, the story is, and again, I, I don't, it, it's, it could be, you know, uh, a story. Uh, is that the, he, he he rode back um, in the middle of the night with a copy of um, I guess the Declaration of Independence to sign at Delaware, or maybe it was the cop, maybe it was the version of the Constitution. That's how he became the first state. But that's why he's on the horse because he rode from Philadelphia back to Dover to to. He went the other way. My understanding is he, he went he went the no. other way. It went the other way. My understanding is it's because Delaware had three representatives to the um, Continental Congress. Um, George Reed, um, Caesar Rodney, and who was the other guy? He has a high school named after him. McCain. Uh, John, John Dickinson. Oh, okay, McCain, yeah. Actually, McCain and Dickinson are right next to each other. At the time. Yeah. So they, were they couldn't uh, – Reed was against independence, and the other guy, McCain, was for. So Delaware was going to have to abstain and not vote for independence. So Caesar Rodney came up and voted so that Delaware would be in favor of independence. So it was important for Delaware, but I don't, it's not like they wouldn't have had the Revolutionary War. You know, it's past. Yeah, and I think what people don't understand because they don't have the analysis is that, yeah, he was a, he was in a, a family, a very affluent landowning family, owned either the most or the second most, in, owned, you know, hundreds of, of human beings. Um, this is how he was part of the continental, you know, had a position in the, in the army was because of his station and, and status. Um, so yeah, I mean, once you, once you put a, once you put a bronze statue in the middle of a city, that person's a hero, whether you like it or not. Yeah. Right. Right. And why Caesar Rodney? Why is there not a statue of McCain? Yeah. He rode his horse, but you know, it's an interesting symbol. But... Yeah. We'll have to think of somebody who we can, who we can really put up. Or not put anybody up. That's my other thing. Is I don't know if one person should be put up in bronze for anything. Um, monuments. Um, the only Confederate monument we have in the state uh, is in Georgetown. Um, and again, I think it's... The history of it is, is actually pretty new. Um, I believe the Daughters of the Confederacy put it up within the last 20 or 30 years. Um, is there any history of any other sort of uh, Confederate monuments or plaques or, or, or anything in the state that you're aware of? No, not that I'm aware of. Not Confederate monuments. Because Delaware officially stayed in the Union. So I mean, I do, I do know that some Delaware, some people from Delaware went to southern states and joined the Confederate Army. But, but officially Delaware stayed in the Union. So no, I don't know of any. The only one I know of is that one, and you're right. I think it's fairly recent. I think was it only put up in the two thousand, like two thousand three or something. It, it's pretty new. 
Yeah, I was I was sort of um, fascinated to learn when I was looking at some of this stuff that there are, you know, you say we technically stayed in the Union, although we were a slave state, um, but there are, you know, dozens of Confederate monuments and, and, and plaques in, uh, in non-Confederate states, uh, which I find very strange, uh, as I find the one in Georgetown very strange. Um, you know, I, I don't know, sort of, <clears throat> I, I, I try to, to rely on history, sort of like you do, it's what makes you so fascinating, is, is to try to, um, to teach the people, but I guess you're having difficulty too, you've been driven off of Facebook, so um, maybe, <laughs> maybe we're both, maybe it's a, it's a futile effort. I try not to get big arguments on Facebook, that is not my, my thing, is I don't want to argue with people on so I'm, I'm, that's why I'm always joking. I'm be snarky on Twitter. Twitter <laughs> and Facebook is put on a polite face for the family and friends. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, what what else are you working on that maybe you haven't shared? What other sort of interesting tidbits? Um, I know you were you you did find some photographs of the demolition of a really large bank in Philadelphia. Uh, that one of the um, one of the pillars has become our our monument here in Trolley Square, the, the war, war memorial here in Trolley Square. Um, I thought that was really interesting, but you, have all, you always come up with, um, with some little tidbits, so I'm interested if you have anything new that you haven't shared yet. We can, we can have an exclusive Ooh. here. <laughs> I don't know if I have anything new that I haven't shared yet. I have notes on some things that I just sort of never got around to writing, but I do have some notes on them. Um, there was, um, for instance, a riot in Wilmington in do I remember when? I think maybe in the 1870s that um, there used to be a law in uh, Delaware that banned political marches at night with torches. And it was because there was a riot after one in the 1870s. Um, but basically a, a race riot that was white marchers, the actually Democratic Party, but they would march through each other's neighborhoods, the Democrats and the Republicans would do it. And so uh, at one of them, the uh, that marchers went on the rampage and started, you know, barging in the houses and dragging out black people and beating them up. So luckily I don't believe anyone was killed, but I don't have enough notes on that to write, you know, I don't have enough information to write that up yet. Yeah. Was that in the city or was that statewide? How, well, in the city. In the city. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing I only found sort of um, when I was looking at something else. Um, something else I have some notes on that I've never written up is there was a speaker at one point uh, who came to Wilmington. His name was uh, Ingersoll. I believe he was a famous atheist back in the 90s. Yeah, I have a book on him. I read a book, Robert Ingersoll's. Guys. Robert Ingersoll, right. He came to Wilmington and he gave a speech at the Grand Opera House, um, which was denounced as being blasphemous. And uh, one of the uh, judges in Delaware wanted to have him charged with blasphemy, which was still a crime at the time. Um, and I have one of the reasons I haven't written that up is I have not actually been able to figure out if he was actually indicted or not. But one way or the other, he left Wilmington and never came back. Yeah, this, the book, he, he, he's known for, you know, he was a, a secular uh, atheist person, so he would give, that's what he did for a living, really. He was an orator. Uh, and at, at that time, you know, there wasn't any movies. You just go and listen to this guy speak for 90 minutes. Uh, but he was very good at it. Uh, but it's my understanding that he was chased out of a few, a few places for similar reasons. Um, yeah, at, at that time they weren't they weren't real keen. When when you have blue laws, you also are not keen on this guy's uh, this guy's whole spiel. So, but apparently he was he was very engaging. Yeah, yeah, I think he was one of the most famous speakers of the of the nineteenth century. But yes, he was he was driven out of Wilmington for uh, making a speech at the Grand Opera House about atheism. 
<laughs> I like that actually. It's good. So just to uh, kind of uh, wrap up, I'm I'm interested just in uh, and how you're doing with all of this uh, with all of this pandemic going around. I know that the library has been closed and and you have been furloughed. Um, but do you have any any feeling on? Uh, I guess your work can can pretty much continue online more or less. Um, but you know the the folks who you're supporting uh, aren't at work, and the library isn't open. Um, how you doing? How's everybody doing? And and what are your thoughts about getting back to it? Uh, well, I do hope we get to get back to it at some point. Um, yeah, I've been furloughed, and unfortunately, I don't know if this is usual with furloughs, but they have turned off my email and everything from work. So I actually do not have any idea what's going on at work. Um, very little. So I'm not sure. Hopefully, we will be able to um, reopen in the fall, or whether I don't know if we're going to have all online classes. Or I think at this point they're talking about doing sort of a hybrid, what's part online and partly in person uh, with the law school in the fall so we'll see with that what will happen but I have no idea when the library will reopen or they have not been asking me anything so and since I'm not being <laughs> I'm furloughed so I'm not worrying about it too much you know they're not paying yeah, me fair. at this point <laughs> yeah if they're not paying you don't worry about it I'm not worrying about it but I do hope we will uh, get back soon um, I'm kind of hoping in the fall you know that we'll be back yeah, we have we have a lot of I, I I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say, luckily, I can do a lot of my fun research online. Um, there are a few things that would be easier if I could get into the library and look at some books, but just have to skip those. <laughs> so it's actually pretty. Um, one of the things I do found interesting. It's amazing how much information you can find online now. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the databases you have to pay for, but um, like newspapers.com has great, all the old Wilmington newspapers, you can go through, search through them and find all sorts of info. Um, Ancestry.com, you can find all, look at all the old census, and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of free stuff too. Library of Congress has a lot of old newspapers. Yeah, you, uh, that's the other thing too, is uh, you are able to find sort of associated photos, whether it's, um, Annie Arneal being arrested, or you know, even the the, the photo, the photos, the series of photos, I guess, of the of the bank being torn down, but still seeing sort of a shell of it there, and and yeah. workmen just sort of lying around, and some shops down the street. It's I, I I I just find that stuff extremely interesting. That's why it was interesting to talk to you because I want to turn more people onto it too. Because um, yeah, I think it's a great photo. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, I, and that's one I don't know if you know if I tweeted, but somebody bought that. I, I found that that's on, I think it was at Christie's, the auction house's website. So someone actually paid a great deal of money for that photo, and I don't know who was it or where it is. but You know, I did see that, that you linked to that, that it was, uh, they, they, it's funny that it's available online like that when somebody paid, you know, maybe it was ten or $20,000 for it. A lot of money, I forget, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, something like that. Yeah. I had that much money to spend on a photo, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, Janet, yeah. thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. I, I very much appreciate it. Um, as I said, I, I want people to, uh, to follow her work on Twitter. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, yeah. When you have, a, hopefully if, if, if you break anything, uh, anything open, I definitely want to, I definitely be there to look at it because uh, it's some really interesting nuggets of, of information. I don't think there's, there was, I saw the the story about the blue laws uh, on a on a blog that you keep, but I don't know how how often it's updated. So I recommend people follow Janet on Twitter, please. 
Great. Yeah, that, that blog is for work. So since I can't, I'm not working, I can't update it. So I ah. have to, I really need to start my own website and move a lot of, you know, just to have backups of all those stories, I need to have my own website with that stuff. Nice. Work out. <laughs> Deletes them or something. Yeah, well, definitely keep us posted on that. Um, um, once again, Janet, thank you very much for joining us. Um, you can find all of our work at patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. I hope everyone will consider a patronage, uh, forward it, post it, like it, all of that stuff. And uh, we will speak to you soon, friends. Left is best. This is a passage from Chapter 8, Wheelbarrow. Queequeg and Ishmael are on a ship from New Bedford to Nantucket uh, to hook up with a whaling crew. On this trip, uh, Queequeg is sort of accosted and, and mocked uh, by a, a person on the ship. There's a physical altercation, and the captain of that boat needs to intervene. But it so happened just then that it was high time for the captain to mind his own eye. The prodigious strain upon the mainsail had parted the weather sheet, and the tremendous boom was now flying from side to side, completely sweeping the entire after part of the deck. The poor fellow whom Queen Quegg had handled so roughly was swept overboard. All hands were in a panic, and to attempt snatching at the boom to stay it seemed madness. It flew from right to left and back again, almost in one ticking of a watch, and every instant seemed on the point of snapping into splinters. Nothing was done, and nothing seemed capable of being done. Those on the deck rushed towards the bows and stood eyeing the boom as if it were the lower jaw of an exasperated whale. In the midst of this consternation, Queequeg dropped deftly to his knees and crawled under the path of the boom, whipped hold of a rope, secured one end to the bulwarks, and then, flinging the other like a lasso, caught it round the boom as it swept over his head. And at the next jerk, the spar was that way trapped, and all was safe. The schooner was run into the wind, and while the hands were clearing way, the stern boat, Queequeg, stripped to the waist, darted from the side with a long, living arc of leap. For three minutes or more, he was seen swimming like a dog, throwing his long arms straight out before him and by turns revealing his brawny shoulders through the freezing foam. I looked at the grand and glorious fellow but saw no one to be saved. The greenhorn had gone down. Shooting himself perpendicularly from the water, Queequeg now took an instant's glance around him and seeming to see just how matters were, dived down and disappeared. A few minutes more, he rose again, one arm still striking out, with the other dragging a lifeless form. The boat soon picked them up. The poor bumpkin was restored. All hands voted Queequeg a noble trump. The captain begged his pardon. From that hour I clove to Queequeg like a barnacle, yea, till poor Queequeg took his last long dive. Was there ever such unconsciousness? Did he not seem to think that he deserved all the medals from the Humane and Magnanimous Societies? He only asked for water, fresh water, something to wipe the brine off. That done, he put on dry clothes, lighted his pipe, and leaning against the bulwarks and mildly eyeing those around him, seemed to be saying to himself, It's a mutual joint stock world in all meridians. We cannibals must help these Christians.
Hello, friends and comrades. Welcome to another episode of the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Recording from the Shadow of Rockford Tower, mere steps from the mansions of the Delaware Way elite. Super producer Carl is monitoring all the levels at a secured, undisclosed location. And I am pleased to welcome our guest today. Uh, Daniel Bessner is the Ann H.H. and Kenneth B. Pyle Assistant Professor in American Farm Policy. At Honestly, actually, for some reason, they will not update that website. But it's kind oh. of fun. I knew, I know it was a long, I know it was a long thing. People think I'm, uh, people think that I'm, uh, I'm actually a tenured professor, but people think that I'm untenured. So they like think they could like get my job. So it's kind of, I kind of like it actually, because people are like, oh yeah, I'm going to like get you fired. I'm like, bro, you, you can't. But so it's kind of it's kinda fun. <laughs> so uh, let me let me let me let me redo this. <clears throat> Daniel Bessner uh, is a t- full tenured professor, and you can't get his job at the uh, f- at the uh, Henry Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington, uh, and he is the author of Democracy in Exile, uh, Hans Speyer, and the Rise of the Defense Intellectual. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, off the top that I was introduced to your work uh, via the late Michael Brooks. Uh, I've been mentioning it quite a bit since Michael's passing to both podcast guests and just other people to demonstrate uh, what a great influence uh, Michael was on all of us in the project, whether academics, journalists, activists, whatever the fuck I am. Um, I believe it's just it's essential. It's essential to the leftist project that we continue to keep that legacy alive because I think those concepts are incredibly important. And I just wanted to point that out and give him uh, the props he's due. Yeah, he was. uh a great guy. I mean, a, a close personal friend. It's, it's, I mean, it still really hasn't hit me. Um, I mean, it hits me when I'm like, oh, I'd like to text Michael this, you know, just by sort of, you know, um, I don't know, reaction. Uh, but yeah, no, it's a big loss. It's an it's a enormous loss. It's just really horrible, devastating. I talked to him like hours before he died. It was just a really terrible, yeah, just nothing to say terrible. But yes, hopefully we can continue his project as much as we can. Yeah, for sure. Um, before we get into specifics about Biden, Kuhn's sort of foreign policy, I wanted to sort of seat the discussion in this concept of bipartisan consensus. Uh, I'm reading the Thomas Frank book on the history of populism. Um, and when when the populist movement was founded, obviously it was, uh, it was a, uh, a movement against sort of the robber baron old money of the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, but the interesting thing that Frank does is sort of show after World War II how that turns all the way around. And the elites of the post-war United States are Harvard men, PhDs, subject matter experts. So it's like the nascent meritocracy. Um, even the famous historian uh, Hofstetter at that time was a consensus historian um, and came up with the idea that the government should be ruled by D.C. elites or you know, Davos elites or, or whatever it may be. Um, we have our own brand of that, of consensus government governance in Delaware called the Delaware Way. Um, but your book talks about Spire. Um, what was his background and, and how did he become one of the leading figures in this idea of sort of foreign policy consensus? So, so this is critical. But So before I get started, I just have a question. Does Frank talk about their ethnic background and religious background? A little bit. I'm not finished the book. I'm about two thirds of the way through it. Okay, so I'm uh, probably not that much. So what I think is critical to understand about the people, particularly the intellectuals, people like Hofstadter, people like Speyer, 
there's many, many of them. People like Hans Morgenthau or Walt Rostow or others like that. Um, a lot of these guys have personal experiences with what might be called a mass oppression. Um, they are oftentimes from minority groups, um, particularly Jews, right? So today in the United States of 2020, Jews are white people, in my opinion. Um, that wasn't necessarily true in 1940. Um, it certainly wasn't true in 1900 and certainly wasn't true in 1850. So a lot of the people who embrace what might be called an elite understanding of democracy are people who have personal experiences with sort of like mass racism, for lack of a better phrase, culminating, of course, in the Holocaust. But before the Holocaust, uh, there is, uh, of course, people who know this, you know, um, centuries of anti-Jewish um, oppression, anti-Jewish pogroms. So, for example, in Germany, all Jews didn't become emancipated until the late 19th century, right? 60 or 70 years before the period we're talking about. So there's a general skepticism of what might be called the masses. Um, among a lot of these people because they have this personal experience with the masses. And so this brings us to Speyer. So Speyer is born in 1905. Um, he's a social democrat, like a hardcore social democrat throughout the 1920s. Uh, his parents were basically conservative Lutheran nationalists, um, but he went left. Um, and he existed on the left side of the Social Democratic Party of Germany. Uh, Socialistische Demokratische uh, Partei Deutschlands, the SPD, um, in the 20s. And the SPD ruled for several years. And so it's important to just understand that the SPD had a left, it had a center, and it had a right. And the left of the SPD was basically like pretty radical, except it didn't believe that violent revolution could succeed. Um, in the context of Germany, and therefore you had to bring socialism through the democratic order. And this is, of course, different from the KPD, the Communist Party of Germany, um, who believed, following the sort of experience of the Soviet Union, of the Russian Empire into the Soviet Union, that violent revolution, workers' revolution, was actually the way to uh, bring about socialism or communism. So the differences between whether you support getting socialism through democracy or whether you support it through some sort of violent worker-led revolution or really party-led revolution where the party is said to be the instantiation of the workers. So this is Spire's belief throughout the 1920s, but it begins to attenuate, it begins to weaken um, in the late 1920s when Speyer, um, who actually works for the Socialist Party, he does a lot of surveys, he works for their welfare office, he goes to um, throughout Berlin and in his opinion, he sees working class people who basically embrace political radicalism, whether it's on the right or the left. He's, he doesn't think it's particularly important to them, whether it's the Nazis or whether it's the communists, as long as it's sort of an anti-democratic thing. And this, to him, goes against the reading of socialism, which many socialists had argued beginning in the late 19th century, continuing throughout the early 20th century, that once you have true enfranchisement, once you have true democracy, um, working people will vote in socialism, right? Um, but Speyer seems to conclude, that he seems to conclude, he seems to see and he does conclude um, that this isn't necessarily true. And so, particularly once Hitler comes to power, um, of course, Hitler wasn't actually elected. He was appointed by a cabal of conservatives. But um, he did uh, enjoy widespread popular support and he was able to relatively quickly consolidate all of German society behind him a variety of political machinations. Once that happens, 
Um, it convinces Speyer and a bunch of other people of his generation that the masses cannot be trusted. Um, and so then, both consciously and unconsciously, they dedicate themselves over the next 10, 20, 30 years um, from their exile in the United States, right? These people had to leave Germany because they were Jewish or like Speyer because they were left-wing. Speyer actually wasn't Jewish. He was married to a Jewish woman, uh, but he was left-wing. They're forced to leave Germany. And in, in the United States, him and other people who agree with him, um, who have the same perspective, both from Germany but also from the United States looking at Germany and reaching similar conclusions, uh, begin to build institutions like the Rand Corporation and other institutions of the national security state um, that essentially prevent the ordinary American public or even Congress for exert, from exerting an influence on foreign affairs. And they focus particularly on foreign affairs because they believe that the United States in the middle of the 20th century is facing a series of existential struggles first with Nazism and then, of course, with the Soviet Union. And they are worried that if ordinary people who remember they think are stupid because of their political experiences, or at least not, if not stupid, ignorant, and not particularly concerned with politics, they conclude that in order to ensure the United States fights an existential war, the Cold War with the Soviet Union, they need to create these sorts of elite organizations. And that's basically the story in brief of, of Speyer and how he arrived at his political positioning. Yeah, I mean, would you would would you agree or disagree or, or I mean, it might be nuanced, but ideas like the Rand Corporation or what people call the the foreign policy blob or, you know, however you want to characterize it. Um, do you think that that's still intact? Uh, I mean, is it still is it a thing or is it not a thing? Uh, is, is the blob still a thing? Yeah, I guess. How would you describe it? Uh, is it a, a sort of a network? Because I know, it, you know, it's not just Rand. It's, you know, there's other think tanks. There's other, you know, networks with defense contractors and things of that nature. And I don't know how you would describe it and exactly what um, what what power it can exert today. H has it grown? Has it got, has, how has it changed? You know, I, I guess I'm trying to lead into this idea of what it is um, and how everybody sort of kind of fits into it when you hear buzzwords like bipartisan or when you hear consensus or when you hear that the defense agencies have agreed X, um, what does that kind of thing mean? Right. So the blob, I think, just refers to the agglomeration of institutions, um, both state institutions and non-state institutions that really affect American foreign policy. Um, so American foreign policy, um, except in times of war, and even then not so much, is notoriously not affected by public opinion. Um, and so the blob is just refers to the uh, institutions, like this series of like, I don't know, let's say two to 5,000 people who really make American foreign policy, who, who develop the ideas and who implement it. Um, so there are people in think tanks, and, and Rand was the first national security think tank, but in the last, you know, 75 years, uh, there's been a lot more think tanks created, so it includes think tanks like RAND, it includes academic research centers like, I don't know, MIT Center for International Studies or Harvard Center for International Affairs. Uh, it includes literal government um, organizations like the State Department and the Defense Department, and it's just this agglomeration of institutions that create the ideas um, and implement American foreign policy. Uh, another way to think about it, or the way that I think about it, is sort of as the military intellectual complex which is sort of the ideological complement to the more famous military-industrial complex, which basically includes defense contractors, congresspeople, and also the government, the DOD, 
and sort of they build the weapons of the U.S. empire. But the military intellectual complex is a conglomeration of people who um, navigate these institutions, um, create the ideas of American empire, right? They, the way that I put it in a New Republic article is that they uh, determine where those weapons are actually used. Um, so that's how I would think about it. And I, I would think, um, and I do think that the Bob is still really um, important today. Uh, and I, I uh, would point people to reading the work of Patrick Porter, P-O-R-T-E-R. -E um, he published an article in the journal International Security that really goes deep into this. Um, but he also released a book recently uh, that I su suggest people take out, uh, check out if they're interested in, in learning a bit more about this. Cool. Well, um, last month in 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 Vox, um, there was a, there was a quote in here in here, and I'm I'm going to read it. You you quote you were quoted in a story called Joe Biden's plan to fix the world, and I think it's a it's a good way to sort of kick off the political. Uh, sort of ramifications of where we are and things that we should be thinking about. Um, you said this, Biden is not going to be the leader of our times or for our times, uh, Daniel Bessner, University of Washington professor said. Having Biden in charge instead of someone with more progressive foreign policy ideas like the Vermont senator is, quote, pretty grim from my perspective. It's a world historical loss for the nation. I um, obviously agree with that, but beyond agreeing with it, I, I wonder how we can sort of get out of um, some of the entanglements we're in. Um, so my first question is just a basic political one because I've been saying it around here um, locally and, and you know, I, I don't know how it seems to me to be true, but in a Biden administration, if, if that's what we get, uh, is it far fetched to think that Chris Coons would be the secretary of state? Um, it's difficult to know. I mean, these things are constantly going back and forth. I mean, I think it's it's a good chance. Uh, I think I think there's a, a decent chance that he'll have a, a, a role in the administration. I'm not sure, Secretary of State. I, I, I mean, that, I think that would be a little little high position for someone who he literally replaced Biden when Biden became VP, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, I think that might be a little too grifty and grafty, and I think like someone like Samantha Power or Susan Rice or Tony Blinken is more likely, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if he so chose, if he got one of the, my guess would be one of the lower-level cabinet positions. Right. Um, like, you know, and uh, even though these aren't very important to transportation or an interior or veterans' affairs or something along those lines, I, I don't think he'll li he's likely to be Secretary of State if I had to guess. All right. Well, I noticed one of the one of the things that I'm all, uh, we're, we're criticizing Coons for, particularly from here, is his position on South America, uh, Venezuela, Bolivia, um, even Brazil, really. Um, in 2019, uh, it was reported in Reuters that he was one of a group of bipartisan members of Congress um, to be supported by. Uh, to support uh, even harsher sanctions in Venezuela, but to internationalize sanctions, um, to ease uh, penalties on officials who recognized, uh, you know, the, the opposition government. And that group was, you know, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, John Cornyn, but also Tim Kaine, Dick Durbin, and Chris Coons. Um, what do you see as a way forward for South American policy for the, for the left? Is there any, is there any way to sort of 
sort of break this consensus that regardless of um, what the people decide in their own country, um, we are going to do everything in our power, and it's quite, quite vast powers, um, to try to overturn that. Uh, I know you've done some reporting from Brazil. Um, uh, I, Bolivia is, is still a, uh, an open issue because they've continued to uh, delay their, their elections. Um, when that's something Chris Coons supported the coup in Bolivia. So I, I just sort of like uh, your, your take on the consensus in, in South American foreign policy from the United States perspective, where sort of Biden and Coons might fit in and what, what kind of things we can do uh, to highlight and possibly persuade. Sure. Um, well, the first thing I'll uh, I'll do is I I, I actually co-edited uh, co-edited an issue of the NACLA journal, um, which discusses what what a future progressive approach to Latin America might be by by actually asking Latin Americans themselves, Latin American leaders and people from uh, the region, like who exactly um, like what exactly they want. So, I mean, from a progressive perspective, I think the most important thing kind of always is to, to listen to people on the ground. Now that, that gets into thorny questions about who you're listening and how you're listening um, so that we could, you know, talk a bit more about that. But that, that I think I would point people toward that NACLA and just search my name if, if they want to read it. Um, I mean, the United States, since, you know, the Monroe Doctrine has asserted hegemony and I believe 1823, almost positive it's 1823. It'd be embarrassing if I got it off by year or two, but let's just say 1823. Actually, we'll double check that. But anyway, since the Monroe, since the Monroe Doctrine, um, yeah, eighteen twenty-three, uh, the United States has essentially asserted hegemony over over the Western Hemisphere, and so um, even when people refer to isolationists, right, um, and you've heard that term, even the historical quote unquote isolationists, I don't think it's the right term, but it's what's used. Uh, they always said the United States should dominate Latin America, you know, the Caribbean, South and Central America. Uh, so that's always been a part uh, of U.S. foreign policy, and I think that's true for both sides. So it's not particularly surprising that Democratic senators would be behind, you know, coup attempts in Latin America. Uh, uh, of course, you know, famously, it's JFK who sent in the Bay of Pigs, um, an invasion that failed, and, and, you know, Eisenhower, though not a Democrat, was sort of a liberal Republican, you know, overthrew Yacobo Arbenz in Guatemala, and there's been, you know, repeated interventions under both administrations in Latin America for, for decades. Woodrow Wilson, you know, during uh, invaded Veracruz, I believe, in 1914. So this is something going back a long time. Um, so I just think that uh, this, the, these sorts of um, behaviors have to be placed in the much longer term history of the United States uh, asserting dominion over Latin America. Um, and I think that... Um, uh, basically the best way to understand this is just the latest instantiation of that. Um, I, I wonder uh, if we could get into, because right around the same time, there was, uh, and this was, I think, March of 2019. I have a note somewhere. Uh, a, a pro-Israel um, lobby and, and PAC um, did the same thing, um, founded itself to support a bipartisan set of, of congressional folks. And once again, you know, you have the Lindsey Grahams of the world and the Kevin McCarthy's of the world, but also Chris Coons, Steny Hoyer. Uh, oh, Elliot Engel. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. Um, but, but again, uh, we see uh, nearly a, a, a total consensus uh, when it comes to, and they, oh, here it is. <clears throat> Let's see. The committee is to advance the brand of pro-Israel legislation it favors. 
Its endorsement on its website praised the named lawmakers for their actions in favoring the legislative agenda closely identified with the lobby, funding for Israel's defense, sanctions on Iran and its regional proxies, and bills that seek to counter the boycott Israel movement. Um, you know, there is almost a, a, a total consensus on this, and I, I wonder sort of what your feelings are. Maybe, um, you know, it's a sticky subject, um, not for me really, but um, another, I, I guess this is another example of almost complete consensus. Would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. And I think if we're ta talking strategy, I think the left um, to change U.S. policy toward Israel, um, I think the left will need to focus really on the Christian evangelical lobbying organizations. Um, there's a book that's just coming out oh, by a guy named Dan Hummel. I believe it's Daniel Hummel. Um, and he actually traces, I think, very usefully, yes, Dan Hummel. He's a, he's a very good guy and a very interesting historian. Um, his book coming out is called The Covenant of the Mind, Evangelicals, Israel, and the Construction of a Special Relationship. And so I think that if, if the left is serious about changing U.S.-Israel policy, the main target there should be the evangelical lobby. Um, they've been really the dominant force in terms of, quote-unquote, pro-Israel policies over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, but in general, no, I agree. There's consensus about that, right? Israel, I think, is usually considered similar to South Korea, not quite Taiwan, but similar to South Korea, I would say. Um, Israel, I would say Saudi Arabia to some degree, are basically, you know, peripheries of empire. Um, and so there's a consensus because Israel is essentially one of the major peripheries of the American empire. And so uh, the United States doesn't really care about Palestinian lives or Palestinian rights. Most of the world doesn't care about Palestinian lives or Palestinian rights. It's demonstrated by the recent UAE-Israel peace treaty and things like that. So what I think uh, you're seeing from a long-term perspective is just the Arab nations of the Middle East um, basically abandon what was you know, a rhetorical move from the 60s, 70s forward uh, about caring about Palestinian rights um, as they just accommodate themselves to uh, new uh, realities in the Middle East. And I think um, the Palestinian people are going to be horribly um, oppressed for the, for the foreseeable future. And what we can, in America can do is try to get the United States to stop you know, funding the Israel mil uh, Israeli military, stop so many weapons transfers, stop giving so much money. Um, and the way to do that is to attack the evangelical lobby. Um, I think, is to really try to undermine their power. The problem, though, is that um, anti-imperialism is always a bit of a hard sell because people are, you know, perhaps understandably more concerned with, um, what's it called, uh, are more concerned with um, domestic affairs, you know, their health care and things like that. So, yeah, I think it's a really tough issue going forward, and I think it's, uh, it's going to be a hard one to win. Yeah, I mean, Trump Trump said it himself in, in some rambling comments recently about moving the embassy that, you know, the evangelicals are the ones who sort of support that and are, you know, are, are over the moon about it. And, you know, American Jews in the diaspora don't uh, either don't care or disagree with it. Um, I guess that's that's kind of from a strategic standpoint, something I've been thinking about is from a political standpoint, as we. I think we can differentiate sort of centrist corporate Democrats that way because they're really just siding with, you know, everybody that we are trained by media not to like or to be our enemy. Um, but those those ties and those agreements and those bipartisan deals um, are, you know, do not um, 
are not looked at as a negative for for corporate Democrats. Um, I I try to think back. I think you might even be younger than I am, but you know when when apartheid was going on in South Africa, it was it was it was a touchy subject. Everybody kind of knew it, and it was like, how are we going to break this? What are we going to do? This is sort of bad. Like there was some at least sense that it was bad. It, I, I felt and. I don't even think we, I, you know, we're certainly going in the wrong direction and there's hardly any sense that we're doing anything wrong, um, which is pretty disheartening. Um, I don't know what, what's your, what's your feeling about that? Yeah, I think that's for two reasons. I think that a lot of Americans sympathize with Jews as, as history's victims because we're still in the you know wake of the Holocaust and that whole experience. Um, I mean, I think it's always difficult to care about other populations. You know, most Americans also aren't particularly upset about the Uyghurs, uh, even though there was, you know, this, this Sudan stuff in the 2000s for particular reasons. Uh, I think it wasn't great for people of Arab descent after 9-11, sort of the anti-Arab racism that spread throughout the country, um, and anti-Muslim racism more broadly, you know, with even Sikhs being misidentified, you know, things like that, uh, famously after 9-11. Um, so I think all of these historical factors ha have basically come together to make Americans not really care much about the Palestinian plight. Um, and it's a very, very difficult situation. I mean, and to be honest, I I'm very pessimistic and nihilistic about it. I, I don't see that changing anytime soon, or at least I don't see um, how that would change. I, I mean, I try to do what I, I personally can to promote, you know, Palestinian rights and, and you know, to, 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 to emphasize what's actually going on there. Um, with, with what Israel does, uh, and it's oppression of Palestinians, but it's really difficult to make people care. You know, people are just more concerned about healthcare. Uh, people are more concerned about racism. People are, I mean, and, and you know, I, I understand and sympathize with that. Um, so I think it's a very difficult situation. Yeah, I, I guess I tried to, and, and that's why I read the little line about, um, there, there, was, there was a small, I guess, uh, controversy when Chris Coons approved the uh, the Iran uh, nuclear deal uh, to you know de-escalate everything now that's been that's been trashed subsequently but um, but even just doing that uh, a lot of the uh, Israeli lobby and a, a, a lot of even distract from the Israeli government uh, gave him signals that he was in the doghouse over that. Uh, he was left off of some invitation list and they was put back on the invitation list, you know, simply for doing that. And I, I sort of try to, as you said, broaden the broaden the scope of it, because it also means that we have to support Saudi Arabia and sell them weapons. It means we have to, you know, massacre people or at least our proxies need to do that in Yemen. Um, you know, all of these things all around, I think, paint a picture that is, is very bleak. Um, yeah, I'm kind of pessimistic about it myself, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I, I, my, my, my guess um, would be that in the next 10, 15 years, maybe earlier, um, Israel does some sort of like more intense ethnic cleansing. I don't mean genocide. Ethnic cleansing doesn't equal genocide, but like tries to clear out Palestinians from lands on the, on the West Bank, you know, as it's been doing for decades. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. And I mean, I think colonization and annexation is actually declared Israel policy. Um, so maybe I'm wrong about that, but you know, I'm not an expert on Israel, but um, yeah, I, it's not, it's not, it's not a, it's not a good situation. I don't think. And as a, as a Jew, I find it um, very upsetting. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a Jew. Uh, I, I've, 
I think the first uh, book was from the, the first book I read that actually sort of clicked with me was the Peter Beinart book about 15 years ago, uh, The Crisis in Zionism. That's what it was called. And it, th that was the first that was the first one that gave me the framework of like, oh, this doesn't doesn't even it doesn't make sense. What's what? And then obviously from there, um, you know, I started learning more about the, the, the violence and, 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 the, and the cleansing bit of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the only thing we can do is, well, I, maybe that's a question for you. I, I know you were um, helping advise uh, the Sanders campaign on foreign policy issues. Um, what are some foreign policy issues you think can get traction uh, and start to move us in the right direction, maybe not in the Middle East, but uh, in other places? What, what kind of advice were you giving? Well, I actually think in the Middle East, what you're going to see is the U.S. withdrawal from most of the Middle East over the next 10, 15, 20 years, even though it'll still support Israel. So I guess that's that's a, uh, or I think it'll still support Israel. So I guess that's a benefit. I mean, the things that I would focus on most would be, would be like really trying to get Americans to ask whether um, they benefit from things like the 750, 800 military bases, you know, the deployment of special troops to three-fourths of the world's countries, you know, the $740 billion defense budget. You know, I, I think really what, what one could do, at least from a radical perspective, is try to get Americans to question the very fundamental bases of their um, empire uh, and and um, where, where they think it's going and whether they think it should just be, you know, maintained forever, whether the United States should always dominate, you know, in East Asia. Does that really make sense historically? politically, financially, things like that. And so that's what I would do. I would really try to get Americans to both recognize and then confront and question their empire. I think that's a really important thing the left could do right now. What is your, I, I kind of want to get your take on um, sort of domestic stuff. Um, with the with the election coming up, you know, I, I, you know, I don't want to get into uh, a horse race type of thing. Uh, but there are other, do you foresee any um, domestic political forces um, that might not only, <clears throat> not only help us achieve sort of domestic goals, but then might secondarily do some of the things you're, you're talking about and do some things, say, with the military budget or be able to, is, is, are there some things that you can think of that would be able to, to be sold in a way that, hey, we're not getting our, the, the risk reward here. When we when we do the math, it isn't for us. Uh, is, are there are there specific things you think can be uh, can can be camp campaigned on in that in that way? Well, I think the problem is a lot of, a lot of even even nominally progressive senators or Congress members um, benefit from the military industrial complex through, through like um, weapons and jobs programs. So I think a good book to check out on this it's coming out by a guy named Michael. Brennis, B-R-E-N-E-S, and I think it's called For Might and Right, but it essentially shows how, like, the military-industrial complex um, amalgamated into itself potentially progressive forces like humans, which have always been conservative in America, but, like, by, by bringing unions into their, into their fold, it, it's very difficult to challenge. I mean, I think at this point we're looking at what I term an educationist project by just trying to make Americans aware of, of their empire and try to make them question what's going on and hopefully persuade them that it, it wouldn't actually be too hard to um, 
to, you know, to, to move weapons from guns to butter uh, and things along those lines. I think that's, that's what we could do right now. But, you know, it, it's difficult when so many districts rely on military pork, um, you know, m- money that's just thrown out around the country. You know, there's a, there's a reason it's the military um, industrial, sorry, there's a reason Eisenhower almost called it the military industrial congressional complex. Um, and I think that's really important to emphasize. And we have to take that reality going forward. Last question. Uh, you've you've done a lot of reporting in Brazil. Um, they are having. I mean, I've just been to Brazil. You've been, uh, didn't, you, didn't you write a? Did you write a long? Did you write a, an essay in Jacobin uh, after you come back? No, that must have been Michael or Ben. But I know about Brazil, so I can oh, talk okay. about. Oh, okay. I'm, so, no, I'm no, sorry, no, I made that made that mistake. Oh no, no, no worries, no worries, yeah, no, no worries. I, I'm wondering if uh, if if a if a victory or or something um, like a like a turnaround in in Brazil, I don't know how likely it is. I I, I follow the politics, but I haven't been there. But some sort of um, motivational victory abroad that would inspire more people here. Do you feel like that's something that could happen? And uh, maybe not yeah. just Brazil or, or 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 anywhere. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, like the great historian Marilyn Young once had a quote, and I think it's kind of right that like Americans are like consciously parochial, um, and like it's been quite a while since Americans have really looked to abroad for inspiration. I mean, I think ma- that quote by Marilyn, um, it's that quote. Like Americans are conscious. It's a really good one, and the, also the Mankins. Every American's a temporarily embarrassed millionaire. Really, you know, combine the two sides of the United States and why it's so difficult to make economic and foreign policy change. Yeah, I guess I'm grasping at straws too, considering the one, the one sort of uh, foreign thing we were all hoping for, banking on before Bernie's movement was Corbyn, and that got just blown out of the blown out of the water. So. Yeah, it's almost like you're, you sort of feel like you're in the wilderness, like looking for any little glimmer of like which way to go. Um, so it's uh, you know it's it's tough. I, I, I there's a there's a big primary in Massachusetts today. We have one in two weeks' time. Um, there's been some good ones across the country um, this summer, and you know perhaps at a local level, um, you know we can get people who are at least sort of open to making the making the arguments that you're talking about. We have some, but not enough, you know, I mean, to... I, oh, it's not like Ed Markey is so great, you know? <laughs> no, he's not. I guess. Yeah. 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 I mean, if certainly Ed Markey's not going to be the savior of anything, but I'm even, I'm even thinking, you know, again, you know, we kind of made fun of, uh, of Elliot Engel because, uh, you know, he was knocked out. There's another chance to knock out another sort of, um, tenured or, or, or representative with seniority um, uh, in, in Massachusetts, whether that happens or not. Um, but when you look at things from a, a 10 to 15 year time frame, I suppose, you know, adding, you're knocking off a few big representatives and maybe a big senator every cycle, uh, you know, could get us to a place where at least people are in place to make the arguments that you're talking about to say, you know, do we need 800 uh, bases across the world? Do we need special forces in Djibouti? You know, are we getting are other than pork, which we can replace with, I don't know, um, stuff that would be in the Green New Deal, you know, a, a public you know, project here. Um, people, you know, people who are very 
uh, charismatic and politically skilled are going to need to be in place to at least say that stuff uh, and to come up with and to come up with policies and programs they think they can sell to people. And so I, I, I guess that's the only way forward. I, you know, I guess I've been thinking about trying to sort of talk people into the political process again when they're discouraged and want to stay out of it. Um, and I guess that's kind of where I'm where some of the things I've been thinking about and talking to organizers and activists is um, you, you get beat up all the time, but you got to stay with the program. There's really no other there's really no other alternative. No, just you got to, you know, keep on doing, keep on keeping on, keep on trucking. <laughs> the title of this episode is going to be you got to keep on trucking. Keep on uh, trucking, man. Well, I appreciate you coming in and doing one. Um, Course, man. I, 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 if, if anything specific comes up, I'll, uh, I'll hit you back. Um, sure. It's been an interesting, uh, it's been an interesting few months for us too, because we also just kicked off a, a small media project online that we're doing like super local, um, kind of leftist news, uh, all just Delaware focused. And you that's know, great. That's what we need. We need more local stuff. So that's exactly if you could sort of like become the pump up the volume pirate radio for local democratic politics. Sorry, local Delaware politics. That would be really, uh, really cool. I think. Yeah, we've. I mean, it's been pretty good. We did the. We've been doing the podcast about a year and a half, but we started to do some crossover stuff with this new thing. You know, I, I interviewed the Attorney General of Delaware last week. Um, you know, we get we get politicians to come on, and I can kind of yell at them a little bit, which is sort of new for this area. It's very insulated and and incestuous, and again, it's very bipartisan. You know, we have. We have the Delaware way, which is just consensus politics. Um, and, you know, we, if we can break out of, of that and do something here, you know, maybe it motivates people to continue. And if other people are doing that together, you know, I, I guess that's really the only way. Yeah, you should get Biden on. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's happening. I, 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 can, I, I can assure you. I've, I've, I, I've had a few folks. It's funny, even... I had another person who's on the governor's cabinet, the, the secretary of labor, um, several months ago, during the beginning of the lockdown. And, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty funny about um, telling me that the governor will come on, but the, the governor's not coming on. The governor and I do not like each other. We're, we're not friends. <laughs> <laughs> I've, met him in, I've met him in person out in public a few times. And, you know, I feel like when you see somebody like that in public, it's your opportunity to tell them how you really feel. Because you don't, you know, you don't always get that opportunity. So I, I, I never uh, shirk the responsibility of telling him in person to his face how I feel. Yeah, as you should. You're his. He works for you. Whenever I see a politician, I just yell at them. You work for me. Nice. Yeah. And, and again, when you see them out, tell them what you think. I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. I try, I'm trying to instill that in everybody I speak with. Yeah. I mean, they're. I will say there was, a, I, I did mention to the AG because I spoke to her last week, there was a, there was a, a, a protest at her house uh, about two or three weeks ago. Um, so they had to bring cops on bikes and sort of surround her home and people chanting from the street and stuff. Um, but she did, uh, she did then meet uh, one of the families uh, whose, whose son was, uh, was murdered by police here in the city. And so I told her, I said, you know, I hope you know that that's just, you know, that's protesting the AG. It's not really protesting you, but we'll probably be back kind of thing. Like since you are there, we're, we're it's not going to stop or anything. So I appreciate, you know, I appreciated her coming on the show. I appreciated her meeting with um, the family of, of, uh, of 
uh, McDoyle. But yeah, that's going to have to con- the beatings will continue until morale improves. Right. Totally. Yeah. I think that's right. Well, Daniel, thank you very much. Um, folks, you've reached the end of another episode of the Highlands Bunker podcast. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Highlands Bunker. Uh, you can also go on Patreon, uh, patre- patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker and uh, throw us a little throw us a little dough, keep our work going. Uh, and also look for uh, our work at DelawareCall.com. We just dropped another uh, big story today about the emergence of the new right in Delaware. Uh, supermarket mogul uh, Chris Kenny and one of the DuPonts, of, of all things, uh, Ben DuPont, are now trying to consolidate uh, ahead of the next election cycle. So read all about it in the Delaware call. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Speak, speak to you soon. Yeah, speak to you soon, man. Take it easy. Cool. Left is best, everybody. Yeah.